Welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Once again, it is Dan coming to you from the wood shop at DTM Enterprises, my little wood shop in my backyard. Uh, everybody seems to dig it. I had a moment where uh, a sound guy told me I should go in the house and build a studio so that the sound was better. And uh, uh, Brian was talking about this group conscious thing, and I talked to my buddies, and everybody, all my buddies, all my group said, no, keep it in the wood shop. That's where you need to be doing it. That is your deal. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, DTMWW.net for uh, any of your woodworking needs, restoration services. Matter of fact, I got a little uh, dresser over there that I'm uh, refinishing the top of for somebody, and a couple other little woodworking pieces that I'm doing some restoration work on some uh, parts, uh, decorative parts around the light. Uh, handyman services. You're in the retro Louisville area. Contact me for that. Uh, go out to Amazon and get 12 Steps Spiritual Recovery. It is a book by James Christopher Cohn. It uh, wraps up a lot of the 90 years or so of tribal knowledge, stuff that we pass around, stuff you hear us talk about on these podcasts that's not necessarily written down. Uh, I will go so far as to say this, and uh, you know, I was a little bashful about it before, but I say it with uh, strength and conviction today that it is the uh, magnum opus, the great compendium the Optimus Prime version of the 12 Steps. You can walk through some uh, really deep work by using that book. So 12 Steps Spiritual Recovery, James Christopher Cohn. And finally, the music wrapped around this podcast is by Darren Frank. Darren's been struggling with some health problems lately. He's still in a rehab facility. Uh, He could use your prayers, but his music is wrapped around here. So today's guest, we have a double header today. And, uh, uh, you'll hear Brian's story and uh, you know this stuff comes out on the podcast and not in the way that I sit here and record it so uh, it sounds a little funny it's hard to like make believe some timeline that's not really happening so uh, Brian just sat here at the podcast table and told his story and uh, his sponsor Billy is here too and I've done that before and I really like that energy of a sponsor sponsee I can kind of see that they look at each other and they uh, their energies work together as they sit here and tell the story and I saw that before I might have to start working more with that thing uh, with that concept of having a sponsor sponsee and I actually like to have guests in at times because I like the energy of more um 12-step recovery in the room at the same time as what we're sitting here doing this stuff. So uh, Billy H. is at the other side of this uh, mahogany table that I built for the podcast, and uh, he's going to tell his story. Uh, I don't know a lot about him, but I know that the guys that uh, I've heard a lot about him. Uh, My sponsor spoke about him. Uh, I've heard a lot about him from Brian. I've heard a lot about him from other guys. So uh, I do look forward to hearing this story big time, and I was tickled that uh, when when Brian said, uh, "Hey, how about if I, how about if Billy and I both come?" And I said, "Yeah, man, that is an awesome idea. I can, no way I could have come up with that myself." So, welcome to the table. Welcome to the podcast, Billy. How are you doing today? I'm doing super. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we had breakfast this morning, a little place downtown New Albany. I'm glad you all thought of doing that too, because I'd just sit here and wait on you. And I, and I still wanted to do that. You know, when you texted, I was like, no, I know the right answer here. The right answer is to say, yeah, man, I'll meet you down there. I got a couple of things to do here, but nothing that can't wait. So I uh, enjoyed that. And uh, super jacked to hear uh, Brian talking. We got all kinds of cool 12 cent energy swirling around the studio already. So this will just add to that, I think. So, well, thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. I am Billy H., and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm a member of the uh, Suburban Men's Group, and uh, I've told you who I am and what I am and where I belong. I belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's okay for me to be at this podcast, and I very much appreciate the invitation. It's, uh, it's wonderful to share your experience, strength, and hope. Hopefully you have some experience and I uh, 
definitely have a lot of hope. So uh, I've been around since uh, November the 1st, 1980. So it'll be 39 years next week. Yeah, well, that's uh, a... So for those four years of, four decades of recovery, I am incredibly grateful. Yeah. And, uh, And I tell you about 40, almost 40 years, to impress you (laughs) (laughs) not with anything i've done to impress you with the power that's in this book yeah the power that's in our groups the power that's in this process of hanging out with each other i thought uh, my friend brian did a wonderful job and uh it's uh because he has uh, uh gone deep down inside where our our power is to find answers to be able to live his life in making a contribution to life and uh, I think he's done a very nice job and I appreciate getting to be here for that I uh, uh, I came around here I wasn't on a winning streak <laughs> uh, and uh, I uh, but I started 72 years ago in Louisville and uh, Louisville's a very southern town in a yep, lot of ways, right. you know. And uh, my family had a lot of privilege. Uh, my father went to Yale and Exeter. And my mother went to Sarah Lawrence. And you would think that they had a, a perfect life. Hmm. When I was six years old on uh, July the 23rd, 1953, I was playing catch with my little sister and a couple of other little neighborhood kids. It was a Saturday morning. And you know how they build a... When they're building a new house, they build the floor out from the middle, and they build it out to the studs. And uh, my little sister was running, and I pushed her, and she fell through the rafters, and she fell three flights. Oh, wow. And she was crushed on the floor. Oh, my. And nine days later, she died. And I don't know exactly what that did to me, but I know what it did to my mother. Mm. And it just crushed her. It just it broke her motherboard. <laughs> she uh, she never really could live in the real world. And uh, there was a guy named Sloan Coffin who was a divinity uh, professor at Harvard. And uh, he said the first thing he was going to ask God was how you could ever take the child before you took the mother. Hmm. And they used to have this real powerful thing that I would do where I would say, uh, so if you have a great excuse, you too can forfeit your life to this disease. <laughs> Good point. And uh, a guy came up to me after I'd spoken out in Texas, and he said, uh, I expect you've never lost a child. And he had me, man. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, we only share our own experience, strength, and hope. Yeah. We don't share other people. So I don't know exactly what it did to my mom, but I knew that her alcoholism and her brokenness, her torn to pieces were so powerful in her life that she never really had any peace. And uh, that was a shame because this program will work for just about anybody as my my sponsor, Don M., always says, you know, that uh, uh, we can be uh, too smart to get this program, um, but uh, you can't be too dumb. Yeah, right. And, and yep. uh, my mother was plenty smart. Mm. So that spiritual brokenness that we talk about in this disease is so powerful. Uh, My mother uh, went to her first institution 
almost immediately after Andy died. So here I am, a six-year-old, and uh, my mom's gone. Of course, my father's just crushed as well. Yeah. How could he be anything else? Yeah. And uh, so I grew up with a secret. You know, my secret was I'm not enough, and you're going to find out, and you're going to make me go away. And uh, that abandonment is a oftentimes heard in Alcoholics Anonymous stories, and please hear me, I don't think I'm anything like Bill other than being a power driver and wanting to be the number one man all the time. But uh, Bill's mother left when he was 12, and his father left when he was 11. And so our founder was abandoned. And I think there's a special place for people in Alcoholics Anonymous who... Uh, find out that it's okay to go back to that childhood. It's okay to go back to those terrors. It's not fear, it's terror mm. that we have when we were little kids. Yeah. And it's okay to go back there because <clears throat> Freud said the die is cast at six. And uh, I think a lot of our uh, defects of character were simply processes that we needed to have because they allowed us to stay alive. Yeah, survival uh, mechanisms. Survival mechanism, that's the word. And so it's its so powerful to, to get in touch with those things. Uh, but if you get in touch with them with no answer, then all you have is the sickness. Yeah. And so uh, I really enjoyed what Brian had to say about that, uh, how powerful this program can come in and change your life. I, they sent me away to my first... Uh, First place they sent me away when I was just seven years old. They sent me to a camp, and uh, I was wet in the bed. I was having a lot of trouble. I was, a, and uh, they uh, put my sheets up on the side of the cabin, and they put my name on it. Oh, now it's mad as hell. Yeah, uh, I came back. I found a way to get back to Louisville without my parents coming to pick me up. Hmm. Because I was so furious. And uh, I stayed furious until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And a good while after I got here, I love the newcomers that come into the meeting, you know, I'm going to kill that bitch, you know. And you want to go, you know, keep coming back, man. Yeah. You're doing great. <laughs> but uh, we come in here with a little rage. And, uh, and we have this magic process. It's called the fourth step of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're allowed to look at that fear that pushed us around, made us be people we didn't want to be. Uh, I didn't know that that's what caused me to be such an egomaniac, so afraid to have that mask where I had to make you believe I was somebody that I thought I had to be so I'd be cool, so I'd be okay. And uh, so they sent me to my first shrink. Uh, then the second grade, and uh, I never had any problem with shrinks. You know, tricking shrinks was uh, comes easy to alcoholics. I, I was tricking this one shrink. Uh, she was the marriage counselor, and uh, I was sleeping with her, which I thought was a little unethical of her. But uh, you know, then uh, you know I was divorcing her, so it kind of was, went both ways. <laughs> uh, but tricking shrinks is is no problem for alcoholics because. You know, we don't want to tell them stuff that would embarrass us. <laughs> you know, we don't want them to be paying them and th have them think less of us. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we just don't tell them the truth. Uh, 
Yeah. And uh, that's the way I operated when it came to all that mental health stuff uh, before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And then, you know, you get guys with, uh, they have their, their work clothes on with their name on them. And uh, those were my, our heroes. Uh, there was a guy named Ken. We used to just get so excited. My buddy I get sober with, he was a top of his class at Wharton School of Finance. And, uh, and we used to say, Ken's going to talk. And Ken would talk about walking up and down his house trailer with a shotgun and, and, uh, and scaring everybody, all the neighbors to death. And, and uh, I love those people, uh, those people <laughs> that have the truth that comes through the process of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was having a lot of trouble in school, and uh, I'm dyslexic. Burns, uh, one of our well-known and certainly very accomplished doctors, Burns B., uh, he says that a huge proportion of us are going to have learning problems and ADD and that kind of problem. And, uh, boy, I had it in spades. I couldn't learn the ABCs, uh, and I was embarrassed on a pretty regular basis with that. So I was out beating this kid's head on the ground uh, in a park in the play lot, and uh, they picked up a little on this anger, and they asked me to go to another school. So I... They sent me to a country day school, but uh, I started in the eighth grade, and uh, in the seventh grade they had had Latin, so I didn't know any Latin, and so I copied from this kid next to me, uh, but he didn't know any Latin either, <laughs> <laughs> and so I got caught immediately, and uh, I got branded. I got branded as a cheat, and uh, that was very powerful in my life for a long, long time. Not the cheat part, but what the headmaster said when he said, you're so dumb, you're dumber than concrete. And I carried that around until maybe my fifth or sixth inventory. Wow. And I realized, you know, that uh, I uh, wasn't smart enough. That was the problem. And uh, I spent a lot of time trying to impress you that I was smart. And... Uh, you know, you always look like a guy that's trying to impress somebody when you're trying to impress them. So uh, that's, I'm sure, the way I was perceived oftentimes. I, uh, I was lucky, though. Uh, I had a few little skills, and uh, I could play a little football. Hmm. And my sponsor always talks about how we, we, have a, we have a place where we can go when we know we're going to get busted. We know we're going to disappoint. And uh, so we always have a few little tricks, you know, we're cute or we're smart or my deal was I could play a little football. And so uh, uh, they crushed my knee when I was very, very young. I was a freshman fullback at the country day school against a huge public school. And they, they made a wish and just tore my leg off. And, uh, and it turned out that that was really fortunate because uh, – Many years later, I got kicked out of the Marine Corps because uh, uh, my bad knee. Hmm. And uh, I was in July of 1967. Mm -hmm. I was real grateful for that bad knee. Uh, yeah, Isn't that uh, interesting. Now I've had uh, six knee operations. Uh, my ankles are no good. I got bulging L45, S1, T6, C3, and I put my head through a windshield. Uh, the car was only four days old. Oh. Always burned my cookies that I had to wreck a four-day-old Cadillac. And I was with this woman, and uh, we uh, 
she was not my wife, and uh, and I was not her husband. Uh, and uh, we went over down on Peterson Hill, you know where those bricks are, uh -huh. and uh, went over there, and I took a little nap, and uh, so I kind of got a little off the road, and I ran into this micro mini bus, you know, uh, Arlo Guthrie's micro mini bus, and I hit that son of a gun, and it went flying down that Peterson Hill, which is just like a ski jump, and uh, I watched that. Uh, as it went down the hill next to me, uh, end over end, and uh, I, I knocked out that windshield with my head, and that's just when they started making a windshield so they wouldn't shatter and go in, you know, break into a million pieces, and, or they made them so they'd break into a million pieces and, uh, instead of uh, shattering into shards. Uh, my mother put her uh, sister through a windshield hmm. when she was very young, and. Uh, they were two very pretty girls, and I know my mother always had a huge, huge sense of guilt. Uh, I guess I always had a sense of guilt, but nobody was terribly surprised. Uh, but anyway, I, uh, I had this ability to uh, play a little football, and I started drinking. And God, did I love it. I mean, I loved everything about it. And... Uh, I mostly drank beer when I was in high school. That's what you could get, and that's what made sense. But I grew up in the middle of uh, the whiskey families that are in Louisville, and uh, so there was always hard liquor available to children, really. Uh, today, it had been a crime for all the booze that was around when we were kids. Uh, by kids, I mean 15, 16 years yeah. old. And uh, uh, I thought that the deal was how much you could drink. I thought there was a test to see how much you could drink. And so I would try 18, 19 beers before I'd throw up. And I'd be a little embarrassed that I was throwing up, but I thought it was a pretty good record. Yeah. You know, there weren't that many kids that could drink 19 beers uh, on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, so uh, I, uh, I never did figure that out till a long, long time after I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, that that wasn't the way to drink. Uh, I, uh, as I said, sometimes I wasn't very smart. <laughs> and uh, I was in a high school drinking fraternity that was 100 years old, the Athenem. And uh, we were proud of our drinking. And mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot, of, a lot of kids that got away with it. I kept falling uphill, though. I kept being unconscionably lucky, and uh, I would uh, get away with murder. And I did a lot of reprehensible stuff, but uh, we share our experience, strength, and hope in a general way. We don't share all those details, and that's probably a good thing because uh, people don't need to hear all that tacky stuff. But I uh, am also instructed by my sponsor that I'm to tell you what I was like, not what it was like. What it was like may have been entirely different what it was like for you. I may have grown up in certain circumstances that were entirely different than yours. But what I was like, I was terrified. I was angry. I uh, knew I wasn't very smart. I uh, knew that if, I, if you told me that you really, really liked me and you were a woman, that you probably weren't very smart. Because I had to go out and find somebody all the time to tell me that I was okay. Hmm. And as soon as you would tell me that I was okay, then I'd leave you before you could leave me. And uh, so I was 
a serial dater, except for the first one, the first one. She was a very special, very beautiful, looked like Bridget Bardot, and uh, she was uh, went away to school, to a fancy finishing school, and uh, she dumped me. And I was a year and a half younger than her. It's no small wonder that you'd dump a 16-year-old kid for a 19-year-old college guy. But it just, just was devastating to me. And I remember drinking and watching Days of Wine and Roses. I remember watching uh, Lee Rimmick and Jack Lynn. And, uh, and she said, I can't not drink. I can't not drink. He said, Kirsten, why don't you come back? Can't you see how well we're doing? And he was obviously in AA. And she said, I can't not drink. Everything is too gray. There's no color. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good description of the way my alcoholism turned out to be. Everything got gray. Everything was the same color. Uh, one of the first promises in page 83 when we talk about those promises is uh, <coughs> that it will be amazed. There's a, I never had that promise when I was drinking. Nope. I was never amazed. Everything was just gray. Everything was just common. Uh, and uh, I like the idea that, uh, that those promises on page 83 that we've kind of institutionalized uh, <coughs> You know, the promises start on the first page. And there's promises after every action step. How about the fifth step promises? Our fears will fall away. Yeah. There's a promise. Yeah. And that one you like to have when you come around here? You know? <laughs> or the, the best promise in the whole book. Best promise in the whole book's right there on page 62. It says, so our troubles are of our own making. I like that one too. Huh? There's a promise. Yeah. Because <coughs> that was a divorce lawyer which is not a defect of character, by the way. <laughs> uh, but I was a divorce lawyer for a long time, and I used to have a lot of victims we now call survivors of domestic violence. And I used to tell them, there's a real problem when you're a victim. What's the problem? And they never would know. And I said, the problem is, is they're going to keep doing it to you as long as you let yourself be a victim. And that's the problem with our victimhood that, goes around a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous it does. unless we get it addressed. Unless you have a sponsor, a person, a guide, a person. If you are you go to the, the woods, you know, you want to have somebody that's been there before. Have somebody say, hey, there's a trail over here and we can follow this trail and we can get out of this woods. And I also love the people that come into AA and they've been, I've been sober a whole nine months. And I say, well, how long did you drink? Well, 18 years. Well, you think you can walk out of the woods in in nine months, you know, after you drank for 18 years? Not likely. So uh, for me, you know, uh, I needed a sponsor when I got here, and uh, and I was so lucky. My very first sponsor was a guy named Jack Latham. He died sober in this program after about 45 years. And uh, Jack, the light would come into Jack and through him and into the lives of those people he came into contact with. And you could tell. Everybody knew. Jack Latham. The love came through him mm. and into their lives. And he came up to me after my first AA meeting. He said, why don't you and this young lady you're with, who was the gal who brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, come back to our house and uh, my wife and I will make you a 
cup of coffee and give you a piece of cake. My very, very, my second meeting. And mm. uh, I, I would go to his house on Friday afternoons and I'd be jumping up and down and crazy and, and life was mistreating me. And he'd say, well, why don't you come in here and let's look at this book and let's read a little bit of this book. I think we'll find the answer right here. <laughs> and he just conned me into going through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And just so calmly and lovingly. Calm and loving. And if he had been a tough guy, uh, Brian mentioned a, a dear friend of ours, Brad. Brad always says that tough love is never tough on the beloved. Hmm. I really like that. You know, uh, I don't think much of people who sponsor with tough love. It seems to me they're just uh, taking their defects of character and exercising a little control over somebody who's pretty helpless. Uh, that'd been the quickest way to get me to run uh, by boy, squeezing me a, like that. No. If that had been what I, if that had been what AA did to me when I got here, I wouldn't have hung around long. Dan, I think you're so right, and I and I and I don't I don't think that you can get power by picking on a newcomer. <laughs> but people try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I kept falling uphill. I, I went to the first college. I, I scored so badly I cheated my way through through math in high school. And so I knew I wasn't going to be a, an engineer. <laughs> and uh, so I, I figured I'd be a lawyer. I had some relatives that were lawyers. and I, But I needed to go to a remedial college. So I went to a place called Parsons. And Parsons was called Flunk Out You on the front page of the, of the Time magazine. And it was for kids that got in trouble at college for drinking and stuff. But I went there originally cause, uh, to do my math requirements. And I got through there, and uh, I remember I jumped off the third floor of a building mm. into a pile of uh, sand. Uh, it was one of those beach, one of those fraternity beach parties for 100 bucks. I would do almost anything for a hundred dollars, <laughs> you know, and uh, I was just uh, alcoholic insanity. I mean, I was just bruised all over, and I, I look back at it, I, I went off any number of buildings, and some people say it was the fear of heights from Annie falling those three flights. I don't know what it was. Hmm. What I know is, is I jumped off a lot of buildings, and a lot of swimming pools. I jumped off a fourth floor of a building one time. I've been really drinking a lot. I, oftentimes, I was in charge of the alcohol. I wanted to make sure it was done correctly. You know, so I got one of those coolers, you know, styrofoam coolers, filled it full of ice, and filled it full of grain alcohol, and and uh, champagne, and ice, and orange juice. You know, big mimosa, and uh, we went out drinking, and uh, we went to the steeplechase, and uh, we went back to my buddy's house, and you know, to this day, I'm still embarrassed by the fact that I, I went to pee in his closet, and, and he had all these designer suits. I mean, they were so nice, and I ended up having to clean about 10 suits, you know, because uh, oftentimes when I had to pee, I had to pee, and uh, I just would Go, go to the bathroom any place, any time. I uh, kept falling uphill. I, I, I went to UK because I wasn't having a very good time. I came back to UofL, and then I went to UK, and I wasn't having any fun. So I went to UK to have some fun. And my roommate was a big man on campus, and so I went through the rush. I already had 90 hours. 
and uh, my father came up, and he had a plant up in Lexington, and he surprised us at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And there, of course, we were with the women and the booze, and I had asked for some extra money, and he looked in the in the refrigerator, and, uh, and there was a piece of Velveeta cheese that was about as hard as a hockey puck and uh, two cases of beer. And he saw what I, the money I needed for food was going for. And he said, son, I think you're understanding what the Marine Corps is, is that if you uh, drop any quality points, uh, you go straight to Vietnam. Otherwise, if you finish well, you get to go to law school before you have to do any active service. And uh, I realized that I hadn't been to a single class. <laughs> but I got a lot of bids. <laughs> I hadn't bought any books. But I got a lot of bids because <laughs> uh, I would tell them. I said, if I, if I pledge anybody, I'll pledge you guys. And uh, that was uh, because I knew darn well I wasn't going to let anybody hit me with a paddle. And so uh, I was a very attractive potential rushy, you know, because, uh, God, I was a lot of trouble. <laughs> and uh, I uh, finally got to law school, and uh, I had to be a lawyer. As I told you, I've been cheating on math. And uh, so I uh, went to my first day of law school, and they were having one of those rush parties. And, you know, free booze was always my Achilles heel. <laughs> you know, I just, I just, I was always afraid they'd run out. <laughs> so before they ran out, I made sure I got, got my fill. total load on. And uh, so I was drinking and uh, really hard. And uh, I was a cheerleader. I had to be. I wanted you to like me. Mm -hmm. And so I invited everybody to come back to the house that I was house-sitting for. And uh, we got back to the house, and uh, our first day of law school was the next morning, you know. I had like 100 pages to read or something. So I announced that we were going skinny dipping. And uh, to make my point, I dropped all my clothes there in the living room. And uh, a couple lunatics came with me, and we went out and got in my car, and we drove around to this country club. And as I came around the corner, there were some young people making love underneath the paddle tennis court. And uh, so me being a prince of a guy... That's what my sponsor, Don, always says. Oh, yeah, Billy, you were a prince of a guy. <laughs> I uh, wanted to put some light on him. So I slammed the car, and I backed up. And as I backed up, I went over the hill, and I went over this cliff, and the car rolled down the hill, and I caught on fire. And, uh, you know, to this day, I don't believe that that big burly record driver that drove me home or those cops or those firemen really believed that I had lost my clothes trying to put out that fire. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I knew there was a price for drinking. I was Irish. Uh, my mother's name was O'Brien, and uh, my last name is very Scottish. And you know, the, uh, the Irish gave the Scots a bagpipe as a joke. We're not real smart. <laughs> we don't catch on real quick. You know, we think kilts are formal wear, and you know, golf's a game, and, and uh, bagpipes are music. You know, we're not real smart, but we don't give in. Yeah. We never give in. We live next to the British, and we never gave in. We live next door. All right. So you want to see willpower? You should have seen what I was willing to do to keep drinking. Mm. That was some willpower. You know, I uh, darn near cut my toe all the way off at a party one time, a derby party. And uh, uh, so I just wrapped my foot up in a towel. And, uh, you know, they kept getting heavier and heavier with the blood that was squirting out of my foot. But, you know, I kept going and I thought I would go a uh, romance this young lady that I had met at the party and uh, 
So I got to her, her apartment, and she had this white rug, and here I'm trying to step into her apartment with this bloody towel around my foot, you know. Uh, that's the way I operated. Not must stop me when I got to drinking, uh, you know. And so uh, uh, I went to my first day of law school, and I knew I was alcoholic, you know. But uh, I thought the alcoholic, I didn't know I was alcoholic. I knew that I drank too much. I thought my mother was an alcoholic. I thought that's what an alcoholic looked like. And she stayed in her room. She couldn't come out of her room on Christmas Day mm. to her own family. It was too painful. And uh, back then, they would send you home with a jar full of Valium. And they never did detox her. And I remember getting furious. I was a young lawyer, and my mother uh, finally got detoxed after many, many, many years. And, uh, and I was going to sue the place, you know, because uh, we got to quit taking these various mind-altering chemicals. Uh, and uh, I'm not a doctor, and I don't give people medical advice, but uh, they never did detox my mother. Hmm. And so she never hit the floor. She never hit the ground. And uh, the bottom, as we call it, my sponsor says that a bottom is uh, simply a decision. It's not this free-floating problem that we have. You know, we want people to hit bottom. You know, bottom is when you make a decision, you can't live this way anymore. And uh, I, uh, I kept using people. A girl put me through law school, married her, and uh, I told her uh, it wouldn't be necessary for her to come to my graduation. I always use this as an example, particularly at Al-Anon meetings, of the selfishness of alcoholics. I told her it wouldn't be necessary to come to my graduation. I had another date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Selfish and self-centered. That, we think, is the root of our problem. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good example. I was speaking one time up in uh, Clifty Falls, Indiana, and, uh, and this woman pushed me off the stage. <laughs> and apparently she had been my uh, first wife's roommate <laughs> at college. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, she said my last name, and she said, that's who you are. And she pushed me off the stage. Oh, and, uh, yeah. That entirely different picture of my, uh, <clears throat> the way I treated that first wife. I thought I had been so good to her. <laughs> but I was fortunate. I had, I had saved a copy of the letter that I wrote her because uh, – she really didn't need to see me. It was important. She had gone on with her life. She had, I had gotten her an, uh, an annulment through the Catholic Church, and I had, she had gone on and married another guy and moved out of my town. And uh, so I wrote her a letter, and uh, she wrote me back a wonderful letter, and I had saved them. And it essentially said, I'm so glad you're sober, and we were both adults, so don't worry about it, and don't write me anymore. Mm. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, you know, staying away from the people that we have uh, hurt is uh, a great form of, a, of an amend. Yep. Uh, I, uh, but I kept falling uphill. I was the chief prosecutor. I had like 70 lawyers working for me. I represented the biggest union in, in Kentucky. I represented IUE 761, Kenny Cassidy. And uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. 
The joke used to be Kenny didn't really need a lawyer. He just took Billy along because he liked me. Yeah. And, uh, but we held off Jack Welch single-handed for 19 years. Hmm. And uh, so uh, I had a, a lot of fun and drank a lot, entertained a, a lot, and particularly all those union guys and, uh, you know, drinking beer and driving great big trucks through mud holes. And, I mean, we had a big old time all the time. And uh, I thought it was one of those characters in the country music songs, you know, uh, Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and just pretend I never happened. Erase me from your mind. That was uh, one of my songs. Hmm. And Christopherson, you know. Uh, hey, little girl, don't you know? He's the devil. He's everything that I ain't. Hiding intentions of evil under the smile of a saint. All he's good for is getting into trouble and shifting his share of the blame. Now, some people say he's the devil. And some people say we're the same. Hmm. And that's the way I operated. I always warned them. I'm a bad guy. I'm bad Billy. You're going to find out someday, sooner or later. And so that way I could dump them with impurity. I told uh, you. I told you I was a bad guy. And uh, and back then, being a bad guy was could be attractive to yeah. a certain group of sick people that I've been attracted. I'm not I sure guess. that's changed, really. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it fascinating? Yeah. That, that and, bad element today, can be you know, attractive. I have a little girl. Um, I... Uh, got married the third time but I'm getting ahead of myself uh, uh, I was I was really I was just unconscionably lucky and a woman came up to me one time and she said Sonny you need to say you were blessed not that you were lucky hmm. yeah very good point but I had all the all the wrecks, all the car wrecks. I didn't consider it a wreck if I didn't total the car. That wasn't really a wreck. That was just a little bender bender, you know, a little bump. Uh, you know, if I totaled the car, that counted. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I was going to the doctors for all these injuries. I kept hurting myself, you know, when I put my head through a windshield or something, it hurt. And, uh, and so I would go to a doctor and uh, I... Uh, I met the second wife, and uh, I'm always sure to thank her because she saved my life. Uh, she told me that she uh, couldn't stay around and watch me die. Hmm. And uh, she was quite a gal. And uh, hmm. she, uh, she had the guts to leave me. I had a mentor named Ray O'Kay who died. Ray O'Keefe died sober in this program after many years. He said, you want to know how to help an alcoholic? I'll tell you how to help him. Bring him trouble. Bring all the damn trouble you can find. Make him be 100% responsible to the consequences of their actions. Yeah. You want to kill him, you keep helping him. Yep, very good points. And that's what I tell some of my Al-Anon buddies, mm -hmm. but uh, that woman had the guts to leave me, and she saved my life. It's one of the things I run around and you hear about wives call you and that kind of thing once in a while. I want to know about what to do about him, yeah. you know. And I <laughs> oh, say, yeah. you have the you are in this unique position where you can actually create consequences for this person. I can't do it. Yeah. I can't give him any consequences. But you're actually in this unique position. But they won't ever. I mean, to find the, the one that will actually do that, mm. you know, we'll mm. put you. Put, well, you come home drunk again. I'm putting your shit on the street. You know. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Uh, yeah, but was, yours held you to the fire, huh? This I one. was so ruthless and, and, and so manipulative and so powerful, and I just kept pushing people around. I would, I would get away with behavior that, uh, you know, I'm sure people would call it abusive. I never put hands on anybody because I didn't have to. Uh, matter of fact, that's been something that's happened in my life in the last few years. People told me how intimidating I was. I was a divorce lawyer. I was a union labor lawyer. I thought that's the way it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. That was the mask that I thought I had to have, yeah. looking like a tough guy. I smoked these great big cigars. <laughs> a wonderful guy named Bob B. was an AA speaker. He's been around a long time. He said, what three things will you not give up to have a closer relationship with the people you love and God? Those cigars, man. Mm. I could keep you away with those cigars, I'll tell you that. Mm. And, uh, that's the way I operated. That's an interesting point, really interesting. Keep I, people away by using that. Yeah, and 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 a lot of other stuff. Just just radiating your rage. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll keep people away from you. Yeah. But I was coming to my knees slowly. Uh, it was about a year and a half after she left, and I would go home and I would I would, I'd go to work about noon. Uh, one of the things that's very important to remember is that if you think that you've maintained because you've still got your job, look at all of the enablers you had. <laughs> look at the people that let you get away with not being responsible to toe the line. And uh, I had an uh, executive assistant who uh, sent me a anniversary card for about 20 years after I got sober because uh, I had a thing with her. I would say, Mary, if you, you uh, can't work this out, I'll come up there and I'll work it out and nobody will be happy with the results. So you better handle it. And she would. And so I didn't get caught, quote unquote. Uh, I uh, uh, was in a sailboat accident and I was listening to Neil Diamond, Love on the Rocks, ain't no surprise. Pour <laughs> me a drink and I'll tell you some lies. And you don't bring me flowers. And I drink a fifth of Cavassier, a fifth of Martel Cordon Blue Cognac. I only drink the best. You know, be careful uh, uh, how far away you think you are from the street because I was just lucky I had enough money to polish it up make it look like I was doing okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's because I was probably uh, taking my defects of character and polishing them up and sending a bill for them as a lawyer. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, I, uh, I kept uh, being more and more isolated. I had a tape recorder that was about eight inches high and two feet long and one foot wide, and it was a dictaphone, uh, the original... Uh, answering machine and, you know today I'm not sure a kid would even know what it was <laughs> you know, with our phones that we've got but it had a message uh, Willie Nelson playing until I gained control again and said leave your name a message if it's important enough I'll get back to you and the only people that had the number were my secretary and my father <laughs> I was uh, isolating some and I had those curtains closed mm -hmm. and uh I was like a vampire. I didn't come out till dark usually. <laughs> and I would come out at dark and uh, go down to the joints and go prowling, go hunting for her, somebody to tell me I was okay. 
And uh, so I sank his sailboat, and uh, we were in the middle of Green River Reservoir. And uh, it wouldn't been so bad, but we had some non-swimmers, and we didn't have any life preservers. And the stove wasn't locked down because the boat was supposed to be in dry dock. And uh, so it went through right through the top of the sailboat, and it sank like a rock. And uh, uh, it wouldn't have been so bad except it was pitch dark. And the real problem was is it was snowing. <laughs> Only alcoholics go sailing in snowstorms, okay? And uh, so they took me to the hospital. And first they thought it was hypothermia, and then they thought maybe the boom had hit me in the head. And finally, after being in the hospital for a good while, a couple of neurosurgeons uh, told my family that uh, it was probably a, something like a wet brain, a tinge of wet brain, and uh, that I had so insulted my brain with alcohol that uh, I had stayed in intensive care all that time. And I had only been drinking for like three or four days, but it was, you know, five or six fists. And uh, and so uh, I was in pretty bad shape. And I did, uh, my dear friend Brian describes as the insanity of alcoholism. I got out of there and I made a very conscious decision that I really had to cool it a little bit with this booze. And so I smoked some of that non-habit forming weed and the one Brian calls the Bob Marley program, and uh, I uh, was smoking that. And uh, when I got to smoking weed, oftentimes my judgment would get bad, and I get to drinking. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> it wasn't a week after my wife brought me home from the hospital, and uh, she had flunked the bar exam because the bar exam was the day after I sank the sailboat, and I was in intensive care. Mm. She was just a wimp. You know, I mean, she was first in her class in law school, how she flunked the bar. I never could understand, but she got all upset because I was, I was in intensive care. And uh, and so finally she left. And uh, I'm, uh, as I say, very grateful for that. I remember uh, my last drink was Halloween night, 1980. And I had a date with, with Wonder Woman. She would have a wonderful costume, and she looked just like Wonder Woman. And uh, I wanted to make her respect me mightily, so uh, I couldn't do that when I was really drinking. I was just reading another biography of Bill, and he, he was uh, very apologetic for uh, how much alcohol took away from his loving skills. And uh, I, uh, I wanted to make sure she liked me, and I was impressed. So I had... Uh, been seeing this shrink and he told me that he wasn't gonna keep seeing me uh, unless I uh, quit drinking so to make my case I told him I'd take antabuse and I'd see my mother drink on antabuse I said I may be crazy and wild but I'm not stupid and I won't drink on antabuse so you give me antabuse so he did and he gave me like a thousand milligram antabuse and uh, the drugstore couldn't fill the prescription they had to send it to New York to get the big enough antabuse that scared me, you know. That guy really wanted to hurt me if I had a beer. And uh, so uh, I couldn't take the antibuse. And I always thought I quit drinking on my own. And I think a lot of people come into AA and they say, I quit drinking. You know, I mean, you listen to some of these stories like my dear friend Brian and Brad and my sponsor. Uh, you know, and they literally said they couldn't quit drinking. I thought I quit on my own. 
until I realized that I had that antabuse for about six weeks before I could take it because I always thought that it would catch me from behind. I was so drunk that I thought that if I took the antabuse, I'd get sick right then. You're right. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> I got so, sober uh, up a little bit before I can take some of this. <laughs> that's right. And so uh, that's exactly what it was. And uh, so finally, Halloween night, 1980, I said goodbye, beer. And I had one beer. And I went home with Wonder Woman, and uh, it's the last time I had a drink. And a little while later, a little a friend of my little sister's, Scarlett, she invited me to a party at her house. And I got there, and she said, what do you have? And I said, well, I'll have a soda with a lime. She said, I heard you weren't drinking. I said, right. She'd been in AA for five years. Hmm. And when that party was winding up, she said, why don't you stay around? And she told me her story. Uh, and nothing in my life has been the same since. Wow. Nothing in my life. She took me to my first meeting. It was Brother Jerry. And he said that Copernicus was almost burned at the stake for saying that uh, the earth wasn't the center of the universe. And it helped him a whole lot when he found out that he wasn't the center of the universe. And uh, it occurred to me that even the Supreme Court would keep meeting, even if I died. And uh, that's how arrogant and full of myself I was. I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, as my sponsor describes it. Yep. And, uh, and so uh, I started going to those meetings. My, the week, the next week, I went to Club Med. I'd already paid for it. And uh, I... You know, you get those beads for the drinks, and uh, I had the beads for the Cokes, <laughs> and uh, I met a kid, and he was the only other person there that had my color beads, and uh, he was much younger than me. I was 33 years old when I got sober, <laughs> and uh, he was, uh, he said, yeah, he sat around the tables, too, hmm. and I had a buddy. And, cool. And there was a guy named... Prather, who had a book called There's a Place Where You Are Not Alone. And uh, I started the idea of meditating. I had done some transcendental meditation trying to get sober. And uh, there's nothing quite like breathing in recovery. It's uh, very efficacious. And uh, it helped me a whole lot. And uh, I started reading that book. They said, who are you to say there is no God? It crossed my mind that maybe I wasn't that big. But supposedly a Catholic priest told my mother the reason my little sister died was because my father was a Protestant. Uh. And I had some stuff with this God stuff, man, in the Catholic Church. Mainly it was because I didn't want to follow the rules, really, and the truth be told. But I had a lot of stuff with this church. And uh, so I was angry as hell. And that's the reason that I kind of agreed to to make this podcast is because I wanted to share with people that they don't have to wait 10 years before they come to their knees. And uh, I was with my sponsor, Don, and I had quit this job. I had this wonderful job. I designed the job and uh, made a lot of money and got all of the fees from the members of the union that were injured. And uh, so I... Uh, I uh, I really had a great job, but I really didn't like it because I had a boss. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I know some alcoholics that don't do well with bosses. Yeah. And uh, so uh, <laughs> I just, uh, 
I quit that job. I called my sponsor. I said, you know, Don, you and I, we, uh, we're trial lawyers. You know, we know a lot about focus groups. You know, maybe we ought to do a little role playing. He said, Billy, we don't need to do any role playing. He's got quite an accent. He's from western Kentucky. He said, Billy, 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 buttero, we don't have to do any role playing. Why don't you just be the little western union man? Put on your Western Union hat, gently, quietly, and lovingly deliver the simple truth. And uh, let them do with it what they need to do with it. Imagine if you'd been responsible for all the Western Union telegrams that were delivered in the Vietnam War. Hmm. If you had to be responsible for the reaction. So I gently, quietly, and lovingly went in and said, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed working here, and you've been a great boss, And uh, but I'm, I'm done. And, uh, so um, I told him the simple truth, and I actually I made more money that next year than I ever made because mm -hmm. I ended up uh, getting a lot of clients as a result of just handling it properly. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I, uh, I was very fortunate. I had to go out and make amends to that wife. Uh, I was a business typhoon when I was drinking. And I blew through a lot of deals, man. I blew up a lot of deals. And I was a coal baron. I was an oil baron, cattle baron, and a bagel baron. And a bagel shop in North Hallandale Beach Boulevard, uh, where the Door Out Country Club is. And uh, uh, boy, we lost our tails in that one real quick. Uh, and uh, so. Uh, we were cattle barons, and uh, here's a bunch of lawyers, and uh, we're supposed to own these cattle. And uh, actually, the story has evolved now after many, many, many years that we probably never, ever did get the cattle. <laughs> we were just one of four groups that he sold the same group of cattle to. <laughs> so we got maybe a fourth of the cattle. <laughs> but uh, this guy stole all the cattle, and turned them into hamburger with the mob in Chicago. So we knew we weren't going to get our money back from them. And there was this judge in western Kentucky who was trying the case, and he was trying this thief, and I had promoted him to number one on the FBI's most wanted list, number, number five on the most wanted list. And uh, this judge was missing an arm, and uh, I called him Flipper. He used to move the pages with the stump of his arm. And, mm -hmm. He heard it. It was probably a poor choice of yeah. trial practice. And uh, so they asked me to leave town for that trial, and I went out to California to see the ex-wife who had had to get out of my town. And uh, she moved to San Francisco. She was a wonderful person. And uh, the way I'm supposed to do the eighth step, and the ninth step in particular, become willing, uh, but to execute is to say, I know what I did to you. But I'm not sure what that did to you. So you tell me what I got to do so we can get square. Changes the energy a little bit, you know. If they say, "Well, why don't you cut your arm off, you know, and send it to me in a bag," you know, they, you know well, I thought I'd clean out your car, you know, I threw up in your car. But uh, they, uh, they said, "No, just ask them what you have to do to get square." And of course, the first thing you have to do is listen to them. Most of the time, the amends that you have to make where you really hurt somebody is with people that cared about you. Mm -hmm. And they just want you to know how much it hurt. Yeah. They just want you to know that you did hurt them yeah. and that you're aware of it. And she said, Billy, all I ever wanted was for you to be sober. 
All I ever wanted was for you to be happy. You want to get square with me? You stay sober. You be happy. So I'd called back to Louisville, and they had let the thief go free. And they were going to put a wire around his neck and a shotgun tape to it and uh, find out where the money was. And I, So I said, boys, I'm out. I'm completely out. I'm out of everything. My nickname was the captain. I used to be in charge of all nefarious affairs. And uh, so I said, I'm out. And uh, <laughs> a few months later, it turned out that my law partner uh, had... Uh, had the misfortune to uh, ask an undercover DEA agent if uh, he wanted to fly some uh, 5,000 pounds of marijuana from Belize. And uh, so they had our tapes off our telephones, and uh, they uh, really wanted to get me because I was the chief Democratic prosecutor, and uh, the Republican United States attorney was an anti-doper, and he really wanted to bust me. And, of course, he had busted my law partner and marched my law partner into federal court and sent him to the penitentiary. And my dear friend and his wife, who was my secretary. Mm. And the name of the book is The Cornbread Mafia. And uh, I'm on page 129, I believe it is, uh, where they said they knew it went higher in the county attorney's office. And they really wanted to bust me. Um, but you have to take an act in the furtherance of the conspiracy if you're in a state conspiracy. If you're in a federal conspiracy, all they got to prove is you knew about it. So they kept listening on our telephones. And uh, all they would ever hear was, well, don't drink. And uh, I'll meet you at the token club tonight. And uh, they don't put you in a penitentiary for that. Hmm. Uh, they left me around to come and spend the afternoon with my new friend Dan and uh, old buddy Brian. And, uh, you know, God's grace is such a fascinating deal. My sponsor tells me that it is a moment of teachability. I love that. Yeah, me too. That's a real simple, good explanation for me. And uh, I don't believe that we could stand to know how much God loves us any more than we could stand to have all of the consequences of our actions fall on us at one time. The consequences of my actions didn't start falling on me until I was a year sober. And then the first thing you do when you go bankrupt, when you go to the penitentiary, is you go bankrupt. Hmm. So all my old partners that went to the penitentiary, they all went bankrupt and left me with all of the big deals. Mm -hmm. all right? My sponsor tells me anytime I make a big deal out of anything other than God and the program, what I make a big deal out of is myself. And I just hate that. It just goes all over me because it's so true so often. My sponsor lays out the program for me pretty clearly, and I'll be quick about this. Um, what's wrong with me is that I have a disorder of the ego. What's wrong with me is I just think about myself. I kind of had an expression for a long time. I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. Right. And uh, this disorder of the ego is that I just think about me. That's the best indication of alcoholism. And I like the, the description of alcoholism that's set out on page 52, the bedevilments having trouble having relationships. 
those bedevilments on page 52 are real clear. They are active alcoholism. Yeah. And then I discovered later that uh, <clears throat> those things we call the promises after the ninth step, they're parallel precisely, mm -hmm. the bedevilments. And uh, so I'll know that my, uh, my attempts to use this process are right there on page 88. And it says, I'll have a new mind. And Don P. told me that a new mind is the mind of a sober person instead of the mind of an active alcoholic. Said right there on the top line, you'll have a new mind, not a new brain. Brain's what you make change with. A mind is this mind of God, mind of the universe, mind hmm. bigger than bigger than just the brain, much bigger. Yeah. And uh, so I have a new mind, and it tells me that I will uh, intuitively know the perfect next right step. God's never going to tell me the right step for tomorrow. He's never going to tell me the right step for somebody else, but he will always tell me the perfect next right step. Yeah. And the next right step is usually something really pedestrian, you yeah. know, like pick up the phone, you know, pick up the file, return the call, do do something decent, Billy. You know, take action, and that's what my sponsor's so hard on. Uh, you know, just take action, Billy. Take action, and uh, my thoughts, feelings, and beliefs are my disease. There's not even any overlap. They're one and the same. My belief system. Oh, my goodness. You couldn't say it out loud when I got to AA what my belief system was in a mixed meeting. My uh, my thoughts, you know, I'm going to die, you know, or I'm not enough. My uh, my thoughts, feelings, and beliefs, my feelings, you know, I'm going to kill that. And uh, so they are my disease, and... Uh, it doesn't matter whether I understand or agree with the cure. Uh, it doesn't matter whether I think it will work. Um, my sponsor always used the metaphor of penicillin. doesn't matter whether you understand it, whether you study it, whether you know the molecular structure of penicillin. You either take the penicillin or you don't. And uh, you get the results that you get. Uh, it doesn't even matter if you want to take the cure. Uh, you either take the penicillin or you don't. Yeah. And uh, so he uh, he always advises me that uh, I have these problems and I call up and I blah, 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 and then I say, you know, I got this terrible problem. And he advises me that if you have an unmade bed and that's the problem, you can call your sponsor, you can take the steps, you can go to meetings, you can share, you can do whatever you want. But it's not going to get any better till you make the bed. And uh, so oftentimes my advice is, is, well, let's just get the bed made, okay? And then we'll see how your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs are. Because yeah. they are to your disease. I, uh, I want to just do a couple of quick things and we'll be done. Uh, how much time have we used? Hour two. Oh, well, we're just no about, problem. Just about done. Uh, we do not have a timer straight here. Yeah, I had this, I had this thing about Annie dying, and uh, so for me, uh, that fourth step is so powerful, and uh, one of the things that's so powerful is is that oftentimes we gloss right over 
one of the most important instructions. It says to pray for a loving and tolerant attitude. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Don P., the guy that I learned this from, you know, he had this son-in-law that was uh, beating up his daughter. And uh, and uh, so, you know, everybody's going, oh, he's going to be in big trouble. Don was a very big, powerful man. and uh, <clears throat> But he said that he almost screwed up. He didn't... Uh, he didn't uh, pray for a loving and tolerant attitude. And he realized that the guy brought home his paycheck, brought home his paycheck every week. And it's the first positive idea he'd had about that young man hmm. in all those years of being furious over his pushing his daughter around. It's actually his stepdaughter. And uh, so I pray for a loving and tolerant attitude. And then it says that I'm supposed to Give them to God. We use the uh, Emmett Fox's, uh, uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and it's so important to get that because I thought that I was supposed to power up my will and forgive the person or even to the point of maybe even liking them or want to hang out with them. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's that I give them to God. God, if it's your will for them to die in hell with a broken back, so be it. But I'm done with them. I'm entirely done with them. And I get these people at these meetings, and I want to say, lady, you know, if your God isn't big enough to take care of this ex-husband, you need to get a bigger God. Good point. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. And then you get to that fourth column. And I'm saying, you know, I mean, I was six years old. Even the Catholic Church wouldn't lay that rap on me. I wasn't the age of reason, you know. What was my part? And a wonderful old guy who's been now understands passed away, a guy named Bobby Earl. Bob said, oh, no, no. It doesn't say our part. It says our mistakes. It's not our part. It's all your part. Remember page 62, so our troubles are of our own making? Mm-hmm. I made all of it. Well, you know, how did you make that? Well, my mistake is, is I hold on to it. I hold on to my right to be a victim. I hold on, my mistake is, is I hold on to those thoughts, feelings, and beliefs, those things that are pushing me around and that make me not be useful. I was with one of my great mentors, a guy named Jack Keegan, who died sober in this program. And I had a picture of my father with my little girl. And I was meant to be sure and mention that my dear wife and I uh, got married. And I was 47 years old. She said she wanted to have a little girl. I said, what? You know, I don't see that in the contract. You know, uh, wait a minute. And uh, she, so she wanted to have a little girl. So we had a little girl. Her name is Alexandra Ann. She's named after my little girl, my little mm-hmm. sister, Annie. And uh, A.A. Hogue, get it? Alexandra uh, Ann. And uh, hmm. uh, so we had this little girl. And uh, that that woman, uh, she's uh, she's the current Mrs. Hogue. I find calling her the current Mrs. Hogue helps keep her on her toes. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, I uh, <laughs> uh, I try to be a I try to be a different person. Alcoholics Anonymous has changed me, and um, 
I was with my sponsor after I quit that job, and uh, we were at the Blue Boar. I said, Don, I'm going to go bankrupt. <laughs> I forgot, you know, that I quit this job, but I don't have any clients. I don't have any letterhead or stationery. I don't have a telephone. I don't have anything. He said, Billy, now we're down to it, buddy, bro. Crushed by self-imposed crisis, we can no longer postpone or evade. We finally had to fearlessly face the proposition. God is either everything or he is nothing. God either is or he is not. What is your choice to be? Mm. And that's the first time I realized that I had a choice. And so I asked him, well, tell me about your God. And he did, and it was this loving, kind, all-knowing, wonderful God. And that wasn't the Irish God that I grew up with. And so I started studying, and uh, I went to every kind of goofy thing you can do, searching. Thomas Merton said, a spiritual seeker is a person who, once they have experienced God, nothing else will do. And uh, I started taking this meditation very, very seriously. Uh, and uh, Bob Jay and I went to a, a meditation teacher at uh, Bellarmine, uh, Dick Sisto, who's a famous meditation teacher. And, uh, and we really started getting serious about the meditation. And uh, I, uh, I started trying to be in touch and uh, I was with a guy named Ray O'Keefe and uh, I said I've been looking for God I've been to the beach I've been to the mountains I've held my little girl in my arms you know I, I want to have this experience of being in touch with this power and uh, he said Billy 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 it's right there on page 55 he tells us and every single man woman and child knows deep down inside that's where the power is. The power's deep down inside. God doesn't come where he's not invited. God's a gentleman. He doesn't come where it's noisy. So you have to be still. Be still and know God is what the psalm says. Hmm. And I uh, started trying to be in touch with that. And uh, this little girl and I, uh, we were faced with her poor mother who uh, I met in Our Lady of Peace. I was a speaker. Uh, she was in a little bathrobe. She wasn't there on a research project. Uh, she was there because uh, the hospital system was really grumpy at her for taking all the fentanyl out of the operating room. And uh, so uh, I became her lawyer. Uh, I uh, didn't sleep with her uh, because she owed me money. It was an ethical thing. You know? <laughs> I try not to sleep with people that owe me money. And uh, so uh, it was about a year till uh, we started to get together as boyfriend and girlfriend. And uh, and she was sober for a good long while. And uh, and she had this terrible slip in the operating room at Children's Hospital. And uh, she was taking fentanyl. I went and asked Don. And uh, I said, uh, you know, at least I had a lot of fun when I was drinking, a lot of the time, for a long damn mm -hmm. time. And I'd be on the bar, and I'd say, come on, we're going to Florida. And I meant it, you know. And uh, I said, she takes this stuff, and she's just, boom, out. Gone. And he said, Billy, 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 Buddy Row, sometimes people are in so much pain that just one minute of relief is worth whatever it costs. So 
my poor dear wife, she slipped away from meetings, she slipped away from the program, and we're running around with all the most wonderful people in all AA, my sponsor, and a whole bunch of circuit speakers, and a whole bunch of people that are just wonderful AAs, and we had this great life, and she kept drinking. And uh, last year, she was knocking down a fifth a day. And uh, I thought she was going to die. My sponsor uh, said, Billy, she looks terminal to me. And uh, Don and I couldn't figure out what to do with her. Uh, she had all the knowledge she could ever need. She'd had that for 30 years. We just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary in the healing place, mm -hmm. the women's healing place. And Don came and got me because I was crying so hard I couldn't I couldn't go get her, I couldn't take her to the healing place. Traffic was screwed up and I couldn't find how to get there. So we checked into the healing place and she did 103 days down there. Hmm. And uh, I was having a lot of trouble, and uh, I was praying God show me the way, show me the way. So He sent me five sponsees. <laughs> And uh, that's always the answer, working with others, you know? And, and so uh, my dear wife now is uh, just had her six-month uh, chip she just got. Awesome, man. Uh, safe, sane, and sober. And uh, it's the first time she's been sober in many, many, many years. And my little girl loves it. She loves it. And I love it. And... Uh, and so uh, I'll end up by saying that Alcoholics Anonymous changed me. I'm not the same person I was when I got here. And that guy said that I have another date. You know, he's not he's not the same guy anymore. And uh, my father he used to say, "Son, I know you know a lot about being a gentleman." Matter of fact, sometimes I think you use the rules to make people feel uncomfortable. What I'm interested in is, do you have any interest in being a gentle man? And way back then, I didn't know what he was talking about. But today, that's what I want to be. I want to be a gentle man. I want my tombstone to say something like, he was kind. And uh, I... Uh, I hope that I'm becoming that person. And uh, my great heroes, Don Pritz, said that and the test when it's all done will be fairly simple. Did I make a decent contribution to life? Mm. And that's my hope is that by hanging around and having all these lunatics in my life, all these new sponsees, and, and I can make a decent contribution to life. And I really appreciate you letting me join you. So yeah. thank you. Awesome story. Um, so many things are, uh, you know, sometimes I like, uh, like when I'm talking to Brian or I'm talking to some of my friends, I, I tend to want to interrupt more. And when I listen to you or when I listen to Don, I feel more like a student where I want to sit and listen and, 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 and take it in. Um, I don't know, that, I'm not judging that at any level. I just observe that that's something that I, I do. Uh, you said a number of things throughout the podcast that uh, relate to you. One of them is kind of funny because I, you, you have things happen. You this this stuff where we tell each other stories is is a trip. Uh, 
Yeah, I've just texted my son and asked him if he was up and would he come get Bruno, please. Uh, Bruno's decided he wants in the house. In the, in the, but I had also one time nearly cut my big toe off with a machete in the backyard <laughs> one morning. And I would just come home from Turkey. And, and mm. I'd been in Turkey for a week. And I came home and I was trying to chop up, chop down. My wife had been on me to kill the asparagus bed for the, for the spring. It had outgrown and it was done and you got to wait for it to do a certain thing. And so I was out there doing that and I, and I had to, and I and I'd already started drinking and, uh, and I was in barefooted, I'm barefooted in the backyard in short pants with a machete and a dew. It was a morning, it was morning. The dew was still on the ground, it was wet. And I slipped and I went. And I, and I mean, I hit my big toe with full force with mm. the machete mm. and, uh, and ended up getting, you know, to the hospital and stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I couldn't help. I was drinking beer on the way to the hospital in the morning, you know, <laughs> and then they give me the pain pills at the place. And I'm all, you know, I mean, this is like a, to me, that all looks like blessings. Like, you know, mm. Uh, mm. all right, cool, good deal, you know, <laughs> and you think, but I do remember what I did. She had went to the store because we were some more weekend. She was going to the store to get groceries and stuff for our weekend and I was sitting on the floor in the kitchen when you said that I've got a big towel wrapped around my toe and it is bleeding all the way through it and I'm on the phone just real calmly going how much longer are you going to be <laughs> she goes uh, I'll, I'll be back soon and why what did you do and I said I just cut myself a little bit well she always knew from my thing because I was always had this accident prone thing and I'm not really sure I wonder about whether like how much of my accident prone was disease looking for pain because pain medication was one of my big deals I really like to have uh, some pain medication on top mm -hmm. of my alcohol uh, mm -hmm. and it, it act like cocaine with me. You know, it, 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 some people, my dad, you give him a pain pill up there. He's on the couch for eight hours, right? You give me one, I'm raking the leaves and cleaning the house and, <laughs> and doing all that kind of thing. And I always wonder about how, if I'm doing some of that behaviors, like, cause sometimes the disease of alcoholism a little bit seems to me like I, I took this from somebody else seems a little bit like a parasite mm. where it has hijacked my operating system and I'm doing stuff contrary to my two spirit when I'm doing things. And some of this stuff I know today, like now even sober, I have to look and go, I don't know me that well, you know, and that's why I have to have other people around me to say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And, you know, uh, am I what do you think? And I need to bounce these ideas off of other people. But I wonder if that parasite of alcoholism didn't have me doing some things that was hurting myself mm -hmm. on purpose mm -hmm. in order knowing that I was going to go be able to get pain medication. I fell off a roof one time of complete, you know, it was just dumber than hell to be doing what I was doing. Uh, blowing the leaves off of the metal roof down to the cabin when it was starting to sprinkle. Like, well, <laughs> in rubber boots. Like, well, that is, that thing was like an ice skating rink up there. Yeah. And and I fell off and I hurt my head and I went to the hospital and they wouldn't give me pain medication because they sprayed to hurt my head. And I'm like, mm. this is not the way that I have this thing planned. But uh, they've done all sorts of studies about our recklessness, that we don't wear seatbelts. Yeah. That we we don't take care of ourselves. Yeah. Long after we get sober. Yeah, you wonder, you know, like we also, Bob Earl's one of my very, come to say that too, Bob Earl's one of my very favorite speakers. I have grown up on speaker tapes. So my very first sponsor introduced me to speaker tapes the day that I met him, my first day that I came into A, which I'll say, I always had to qualify that. I came in with a third tradition desire to stop. I've been court ordered to AA when I was a kid, when I was 16 with that DUI, and 19 again, and other times when I got in trouble, but had no interest but other than get my card punched so that I could get out of trouble, right? And um, but when I came in with that, I had a guy turn me on to speaker tapes, you know, and and but and then another friend turned me on to Bob Earl. I have like 40 something Bob Earl tapes in my phone. He is a staple mm -hmm. of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I do love to listen to him. And uh, you were talking about that. Uh, 
Because he talks about like, you know, one of the things that I picked up, you know, he talks about smoking and being suicide one thing right. at a time. Right. Uh, you talked about the cigar and using it to keep people oh. at a distance, you oh, know. Yeah. And it made me think about like that whole habit yeah. thing. I'm yeah. a 733 days off of nicotine. I'm a little, last week was my two year. I dipped primarily later. Yeah, so I was on smokeless tobacco. But I also know when you said that, I thought about how that kept people at a distance from me. You know, I remember Bobby Earl gross... had a cigarette, had an ashtray big enough to put a fish on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, and uh, you know, and now today, like when people smoke, I it causes me to be wanting to not to have a little distance between me and that. You know, you I bet. just don't want that in my. I don't want to smell like that. And uh, that's a real interesting concept that you presented there about using cigars to keep mm. people at a distance. Mm. Another thing you said is uh, that really caught me was the fact that you've jumped off of roofs. And again, I don't want to interrupt because you're in a flow and stuff, but I think about that and then having that be related to the fact that what happened to your little sister. And you, you almost wonder, you know, I don't know, I'm just throwing out like ideas. Is like, you know, almost is that like trying to like off Proving myself? Proving I'm not afraid. Or is that, because I'm wondering like thinking about like, am I trying to go the same way that she went? Am I, am I almost trying to kill myself here? Uh, in the same way, because, you know, one of the things that I hear is I talk to people uh, is this element because I try to back them up into their childhood and a lot of times behind the podium we don't have time to go into that right but we right. have a little bit more time here is to go back and look at these things that happened to us when we were children you just started right off with a huge traumatic event that just blows me away man I mean tears are was coming out of my eyes as you said that and I have had a couple other similar experiences here where somebody just brought something out on a table it's just, just gut-wrenching right out of the gates you know like oh my and this trauma this trauma aspect of this disease uh, in people's early lives. Uh, I'm full, I believe in the whole disease concept that I was born with this thing at some level big time, but I also know that like a nurture nature kind of thing of the, the you, you take that genetic component, because my mom was also an addict. She's a professional woman, but she got her her pharmacy stuff and got her, and that's mm. the first place I started stealing pills was from my mom. Mm. Uh, we talk about sometimes, and you hear people mm. talk about stealing drugs, stealing your friend's drugs and helping them look for them. I did that with my mom. <laughs> I stole her drugs and helped her try to figure out who was stealing her pills. Mm. And uh, and she ended up losing her life to this disease ultimately just a little bit, you know, never does look like alcohol, or rarely does it look like alcoholism mm -hmm. or addiction. Mm -hmm. It, it mm -hmm. looks like something else. It looked like a stroke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But to... Uh, yeah. To come back around and, and and look at that nurture nature and how you know if I got that element in me and then I start end up having some kind of traumatic event like that, how you like you know how do you get you know, how do you get by that? Well, you know God does allow us to get by that. That's the answer to that. Is is how do we get by that? You know, and and Joseph Campbell's hero's journey thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and about mm -hmm. how we're going to end up bumping our heads against stuff, and that just is life, right? And the Buddha says life is suffering, right? We're going to have these things happen. The deal is, is that we can we can we get a hold of this uh, power that will allow us to survive that, and then one step beyond that, and that's kind of like that hero's journey coming full circle. Is that do we get to the other side of it? We're able to use that pain to help somebody else, and uh, <laughs> and I get touched every time I talk about it because this stuff means something to me, big time. Uh, the Joseph Camel myth and mythology. I mean, that's what opened the door for me to the higher power. I was not going to go there with a Catholic God. I wasn't going there with a traditional God. Yeah. It's myth and mythology with Joseph Camel that opened the door for me. 
And all the stories are the same. Yeah, they are. They're they all really the are. same. Yeah, they're all just like and packaged up in the, obviously like this higher power concept, you know, for whatever reason, we need a blue ribbon. And this other group needs a red ribbon tied around it. And this, you know, just this, the same fundamental things packaged up. That's 12 steps are fundamental based on ancient spiritual principles just packaged up for guys like me and you. Remember page 26, it tells us that, that if what we have seen and felt and feel means anything at all, it means that we can have a relationship with our Creator as soon as we're honest and willing enough to try. Yeah. But we have to we have to get past that terror. Yeah. We have to be willing to try. Yeah. You know? And uh, so your 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 contribution to uh, recovery is, is very, very important because it's like Joseph Gamel and all of our spiritual paths have shown. It's all about storytelling. It really is. That's how we it get is from our here to stories. there. Yep. The Native it's, Americans, yeah. the every spiritual principle, all that stuff. There's so much of it was not written until later on. It was yeah. all passed down through verbal tradition. That's where the power is yeah, in the really, stories. Yep. And I sit here today, you know, and I can honestly say because of having received this gift today that everything else I do out there, the things I do to make sure I can pay the bills and all that, all that today for me is a, is our means to be able to do this, right. to be able to sit with people and help them walk through the 12 steps and the beating right. in this brotherhood that I'm in today. And I'm saying with my wife who's dying, literally, literally mm -hmm. dying, you know, what's what's the point? So God has me, has the phone ring, you know, five times. Yeah. Five people say, hey, I hear you're doing steps, you know, would you mind? And uh, so God will always send us the answer. Yeah. Our problem is, is we got to be willing to ask. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and with my ego, whew. And willing to say yes when the, no when the door's knocked, open the door when it's, yeah. when, when it's knocked on. Yeah. yeah, another old biblical thing. Knock and the door will... Oh. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you, Billy. Thank uh, you I've so really much, enjoyed Dan. It I big appreciate time it. And I uh, really appreciate Great. your time and coming in here. I know this is a big, uh, yeah, there's the sigh. There's, there's the, the uh, it's a, it's thank a, it's a commitment to come in here and do this and, uh, and, and to come do, you know, a lot of people, frankly, have a little hesitancy coming to being on a podcast like this. And uh, I really appreciate you doing that. Uh, as you said, these stories that people have uh, are being listened to through this medium of a new generations. That's what the, that's that is what is is carrying those stories to this newer these these younger people who need this solution oh so badly uh, with everything that's going on. So thank you for bringing yours here and doing that. Bill was crazy about technology. He loved yeah. science. Yeah, yeah, he'd have been all over this. He'd been all over this. Yeah, absolutely. Whew. Thank you. Uh, DTMWW.net. 12-Step Spiritual Recovery, a book by James Christopher Cohn. You can get that on Amazon. And, J and Darren Frank's music is wrapped around this podcast and most others. Uh, if you're not having a blast in your recovery, it's your own damn fault because it's available to you. Thank you all for allowing me to participate in my recovery in this manner today. Peace out. Greetings, folks. This is the Colonel. You may remember me from episode 126 about nicotine recovery. Well, I'm here with this week's public quit announcement for those of you wishing to add nicotine to your recovery roster. This PQA is brought to you by DTM Woodworking and Handy Dance Services. Everyone always wants to know about that first couple days and how bad it is, or whether theirs was a normal experience. 
Well, after Lord knows how many times I've gone through it, I can tell you that each one is a little different. It really just depends on you, the state of your addiction, and some other chemistry crap. But here's what you can expect. At first three days where the nicotine is still in your system, you're going to feel miserable. You'll feel decreasing energy levels and a desire to just bury your head in your pillow until it all goes away. Now we all have to work, so this isn't always possible. So remember, what, are you, what you are feeling during that first 72 hours is your body ridding itself of the nicotine from your system. And probably for those of you addicts as bad as me, you'll also be battling the worst of the physical addiction, i.e. shaky hands, trouble thinking straight, and a constant desire for a nicotine fix. Just remember folks, no matter how bad it is, it will quickly pass and you will feel a little better with each day of quit you put behind you. Worry not, your physical and psychological symptoms are likely very normal, but just in case you are concerned about some potential medical condition, don't waste any more time listening to me, go see your doctor. Well my friends, this has been your PQA for the week. Take it from Dan and I, it all gets better. You only need to worry about staying quit today, one day at a time. Put it on and carry on, my friends. Colonel Noko Bow.
ver se 